Okay, uh, you came on a great Sunday. You're going to get two sermons for the price of one. Uh, one's really short, and the other one's a little bit longer. But here's what I want to say. The more feedback you give me, the quicker I tend to go. So, right? It's like if you're in a conversation. It's true. If you're in a conversation with someone and it's just dead silent, like you, you explain it again and again and again because you don't think you get anywhere. So the more feedback you give me, the quicker you get to Swiss Chalet. So that's how it works. Or wherever it is that you eat now. Swiss Chalet is probably a joke from the 1990s, but that still works. Okay. So to develop a deeper trust in Scripture, we're working through a series of questions to be resilient disciples as we are in a grand season of listening, loving, and leading. Uh, but we're also dropping some hints as we go through on ways that it's, more appro- it's appropriate for us to read the Bible, and these can be a little course corrective. We've talked about in how in Scripture there are things that are descriptive, and then there are things that are prescriptive, okay? There are things that simply describe what's happening versus a prescription, like you should take this, you should do this. And you need to understand the difference there. You need to understand. So for example, there's a time in the Bible you can read, there's a city called Jericho, and God said to the leaders, like walk around it for seven days, and on the seventh day, walk around it seven days. Now, you can march around Ottawa all you want. The difference is that's not prescriptive for how you take every single city. It's just descriptive. It was prescriptive for them, but it's not for us. It's God said that to them at this time. So what God is speaking to a city might be entirely different. So you can't just look in Scripture and go, oh, it's in the Bible. Let's go do that. I mean, you can, but you just may be exercising. That's all I'm saying. Because if God didn't specifically say, hey, go do that, then it's just, it's biblical, but it's not prescriptive, like do it everywhere. It didn't happen around every city. So there's descriptive and there's prescriptive. We talked about how it's important to look at the text in context. So who it was written for, what was the heart of it, what's the grammar, what's the syntax, what was the original author's understanding, so that we don't subjectively imprint our own ideas on it and make it say whatever we want it to say. Like if you pick up your entire Bible, here's a real shocking thing. You won't find Canada in it anywhere. Turn to the person beside you and go, what? Here's another thing that's terrifying. You're not in it at all. Some of you are like, wait a minute, hang on now. I think I'm on every, I think I'm on every page. No, no, no. So again, but yet you'll find principles that speak to Canada. You'll find principles that speak to every single heart. You'll find all of these things. But it's important to recognize in many different ways, the Bible was written to people, but it's also for us, but it was written to specific people, okay? And this is important. Now, I want you to watch this, okay? At the bottom, we have these things called questions. Anybody got any questions? Like, not right now, but I'm saying hypothetically in life, do you question anything? Yeah, okay, we have questions. From our questions, we begin to form these things that we all have and we share liberally now called opinions. Everybody's got one. Everybody's got an opinion. So we have questions, we have opinions. Then we, from our opinions, we develop these things called convictions. And convictions are really important, but there's one level higher as followers of Christ, and that is absolutes. Let me give you an example opinions. I'll give you a biblical example. This is the short sermon, by the way. I'll give, you, um, I'll give you a biblical example of it, a theology example of it, and then a cultural example of it. Questions, opinions, convictions, beliefs, absolutes. There are followers of Jesus today who have a conviction. Everyone say a conviction. So when they've questioned, they have opinions, they've moved to convictions, and their conviction is 
that because we as followers of Jesus, from the death of the last apostle, the last follower of Jesus, the last one, the disciple that Jesus called the last apostle, with their death, certain specific gifts of the Spirit, which were in their day, are not for our day. They're called cessationists. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. But when they look at Scripture, they have a conviction, they have a conviction that the gifts of the Spirit are certain ones stopped with the death of the last apostle because we have the full canon of Scripture now today, and that's how God is revealing Himself. And so they can be Baptist or they can be different denominations. And here's what's incredible. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. We can link arms together. However, we at Life Center don't view the Scriptures that way. Our conviction is that all the gifts of the Spirit that God gave in the apostles' life are still in operation today, that every gift that they needed is a gift that we need today. And so we are in conflict here. And because we are in conflict here, here is where we are not in conflict with our brothers and sisters who are cessationists. We are not in conflict around our absolutes. We all agree in the centrality of who Jesus is. There is salvation in nobody else, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the Scriptures are inspired and infallible. And so in these ways, here's what's remarkable. Because we agree in all the absolutes, we are followers of Jesus together, but we don't worship in the same living room. And we don't worship in the same living room all the time, number one, because we're all immature and we all like to fight, okay? But number two, number two though, some people look at the church and they say things like this, like, man, if the church of Jesus is supposed to be the church of Jesus, like, why is it not united? Why is it so divided? Well, it's divided based on our own immaturity, but also second of all, sometimes it's a wise thing to do to put up a little fence that is low, that we can stand on one side, we can have full conversations, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, we share absolutes, but we worship in different living rooms, and here is why. Because people coming into the church, we're either going to come into an environment where we are agreeing on our absolutes, or we're constantly fighting over our convictions. And if we're constantly fighting over our convictions, we won't actually preach the gospel because we'll be trying to convert one another and not see people come to Christ. And so we worship in different living rooms so that the gospel can be presented in such a way that even people who have different convictions, though they share the same absolutes, can walk in unity together. Okay? So this is an important thing. So here's how we're leading life there. That's a biblical example, cessationist continualism. It's biblical. Now let me give you a cultural one. Uh, Pandemic. Ooh, turn the person beside you and say, don't talk about that. (laughs) Vaccines. Don't talk about that. Vaccines and the pandemic should live in the world of questions and opinions. Listen to me. Questions and opinions. When it shifts to convictions and absolutes, that is not a biblical progression, that is a deformation. Hello. So I can sit across with someone who has a different question and opinion, even a small b belief than I do, but there is a higher absolute, and that is when we are enemies. In other words, when we are on opposite sides of the same subject, the same issue, There's a higher conviction in the Scripture that calls me to actually listen and walk in love with you. It's a higher calling. And so oftentimes there can be pressure on pastors and leaders and even you to make things that can be in the realm of opinions and questions in the place of convictions and absolutes. And when they move to the place of convictions and absolutes, number one is they are in an improper place in the church. We're majoring on minor things. And second of all, at worst what happens is regardless of what the belief is, it can create cult-like environments. 
where again, non-essential things become essential things. And this is a danger in all of our hearts and lives. And so what we've been looking at, that was the mini-sermon. Let me finish it. Uh, what is the Bible about? Uh, who, what is, oh, sorry, what is the Bible? What is the Bible about? Who is the hero of the Bible? And today is how does the Bible help us live like Jesus? And I mean every word that I just said that, I'm going to slow it down and I'm going to say it again. How does the Bible help us live like Jesus? Because if the Bible isn't helping us live like Jesus, Houston, we have a problem. Somewhere. I don't know where. Turn the person beside you and say, I know you're not the problem. <laughs> so how does the Bible help us live like Jesus? Each word in that sentence was carefully selected, and to explain, I'm going to quote Tim Chalice and Joss Byers. The Bible is a glorious and it's a powerful book, yet the Bible can be used in dangerous ways. And so many today use the Bible as a self-help book meant to pump up our own self-esteem. Others use the Bible today and throughout history for their power or for their political agenda. Perhaps more commonly, some religious leaders hold up the Bible merely as a set of rules meant to guide our lives. And here's the thing. There are rules in the Bible that guide our lives, but the ultimate heart of the Scripture is that you and I would become more like Jesus, which is miraculous transformation empowered exclusively by the Holy Spirit that you and I walk in obedience to. It's different than just behavior modification. It is something deeper. And so today, let's talk about two common issues. What happens when the Bible, don't forget, if you, have, you give me a little feedback, I'll go quicker. Uh, Today, let's talk about two common issues. What happens when the Bible becomes about us and not us becoming more like Jesus? And I am not an expert in this. I am a fellow sojourner along the way who gets caught in these things often, and I need the beautiful, wonderful guilt, guilt and conviction of the Holy Spirit to shock my conscience, to offend my heart, to enable me to see in the moment what I cannot see so that I can move in a place of repentance and obedience to become more like Jesus. Okay? This is the process. So I'm not here as an expert saying like, hey, follow me and I do this perfectly. I do some things well, but in this, we all have room to grow. One day, everyone say one day. One day, a group of leaders who didn't believe in the resurrection. Ah. One day, a group of leaders had some questions and those questions began to inform some opinions. And then their opinions began to form these small b beliefs, kind of like in between uh, opinions and convictions. They had these beliefs. And like all types of beliefs, we like to congregate with people who see the world the way we do. And people who don't see the world the way that we do, we can just see them differently, like they're in the wrong category and we're in the right category. So this is what happens. And there's a second thing that happens, though, usually around our beliefs, like we're going to see here in a moment. The moment we begin to have a belief, here's what can happen is Jesus can shift in our hearts and minds from being a person that is worthy of worship to a prop to make our point come true, okay? This is what can happen. So we can, in a way, taking the Lord's name in vain is not just like people cursing on the job and using the name of Jesus. Taking the Lord's name in vain includes that, but it is also using the name of Jesus for our own selfish gain and not for spirit-inspired transformation. This too can be using the Lord's name in vain. And so we can be guilty. So again, a group of leaders who didn't believe in the resurrection, Jesus had not yet rose from the dead, but this is pretty central. Resurrection is pretty central to the belief in following Jesus. It's an absolute, okay? A group of leaders asked Jesus about marriage to prove their point. I also want to let you know that if you look through cultures and histories, marriage for some reason, because God said it's a symbol and it's a sign, always becomes a point of a culture of contact and debate. Always, okay? We see it here. Here's what Jesus says to them. 
He says to them when they are talking, here's what he says. It's really interesting in Matthew 22, 29. He says, you're wrong. And here's why they're wrong. Because you neither know the scriptures, though you're quoting them, you don't know them, and you don't know the power behind them. This is what Jesus says. It's incredibly insightful. You don't know the scriptures intimately. You can quote them, but you don't know them. But you also are divorced from the power that is behind them. If it's an ulterior power other than God, it's the wrong power. This is what Jesus says to them. And the question is, can you and I be guilty of using the Bible when our motives are skewed? Yes, yes. A thousand times, yes. Jesus said so. When we don't embrace that the Bible bears witness about who Jesus is in John 5, 39, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. So it's not diminishing the Bible, it's actually pulling it to a higher standard. It's raising and it's elevating it, but what Jesus is saying is it's not just the words, it's the author of the words that you and I get, need to get to know. We don't worship the book, we worship the author of the book, Okay? Because the Bible reveals the character, works, promise, and plans in the person of Jesus. And Jesus is the summation and the substance of all God's promises. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And that is why when you and I go, ah, I like New Testament God, the Old Testament one, yeah, not so much. Like, why was the Old Testament God so angry? Like, I like the New Testament God. No, 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 no. Same. God. In fact, this is an absolute God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Same. This is an absolute. All religions are basically the same. No, they're not. They're fundamentally different. Our absolute is God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Same God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You've seen the full heart. This is what it looks like. So then how does the Bible help us live like Jesus? Well, intention. Everyone say intention. It leads us to God-authored liberty or freedom. I want you to keep that word liberty in your heart as we journey through in these couple of minutes together. So intention, it leads us to God-authored liberty and freedom. Now, God's kingdom is now. It's what Jesus said. The kingdom is here now, but it's also not yet, in the sense that one day sin will be no more. There'll be no other death, no mourning, no crying. Every tear is going to be wiped. That's the fullness of it, but yet Jesus said it's here now. You and I live in grace, but we also need to live in truth. And these things can be intention sometimes. Uh, how many of you know that the fit, that work of Jesus is finished? You can't add to it. So salva salvation is not like I come to Jesus and I trust in the cross 90% and I make up 10%. No, 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 no. It is a finished work. But here's what we are. We're unfinished works. Like we're unfinished. We're an unfinished church. We, we need to be praying for other churches because they're more unfinished than us. But... <laughs> That's a joke for where I'm about to go, okay? We experience in our lives conviction, which makes us feel guilt. But the enemy wants us to feel shame and condemnation. So oftentimes, because we don't want either, we go like, well, I, no, no, God would never make me feel bad. Excuse me. Where did you read that? Not in that book. Not in the Bible. I'm pointing at my iPad because there's an app on there that has the Bible on it. Okay, great. Tension. Everyone say tension. Tension creates growth, and when growing, because of the stretching, we seek relief. Now, I'm going to just do a little illustration for you here. This is what our world's going through. This is what your heart may feel like in a season. In my right hand here, I have a rubber band, and in my left hand here, I have the same rubber band. 
Do you see how quick I got it from there to there? It's just magic. How many of you have ever felt pulled in life in different directions? Can I see your hands, please? Okay. How many have ever felt pulled on the inside? Okay. Here's what happens. When God designs and desires to grow you, you know what you're going to feel? Tension between where you are and where God is leading you to be. Between who you are and who you can be in Christ. Between what you're doing and what freedom looks like. Between what is present in your life and what could be in your life. All these things, you're going to begin to feel tension. And the moment you and I begin to feel tension, your next response is going to be, I don't like tension. So you're going to look for a way to ease the tension. Now, this rubber band was designed for tension. It's actually its purpose. Its purpose is designed for tension. However, if I continue to pull, you're going to experience another tension in the room, and that is some of you are going, that's going to break. You need to stop right now. You're going to hurt yourself. Here's what I want you to know. In life, in God's hands, you will always break through. In the hands of the enemy or in your own hands, there will be a breaking, but it won't be a breakthrough. But I even have good news. Even if you break apart, your God has promised never to leave you or forsake you. He's just that good. Okay? But the bottom line is the more, the more, the more, the more, the more. So oftentimes when you and I are growing and we're stretching or becoming more like God or culture's pulling on our convictions, it's mocking our absolutes, it's pushing on all these things, we look for relief because we know there's going to be a breaking. And if there's going to be a breaking, there's going to be a wounding. And we need to trust the Lord in this. But there are two places that pull on our hearts to break us apart. And one is over here and the other is over here. And we want to talk about what happens if we continue to pull as the church of Jesus Christ apart. Ow! <laughs> is there's a breaking. There's going to be a breaking. And this isn't the breaking that we want. We have too many of these stories occurring. Too many stories of brokenness, and I want to show it to you in Scripture as we dig in. Two common ways that humanity is drawn to relieve the tension so that there won't be a breaking. Here's the danger if we go to these two beliefs. Because we don't like the tension of what God is doing, we don't want to see a brokenness. If we choose one of these two things, here's all I want you to know. We're just choosing a different form of brokenness. The difference is we feel safe, but others are being wounded. I'll show you. As we study the Bible, living like Jesus helps us reject the first tension, which is legalism. Legalism. Turn the person beside you and say, I'm not legalistic. <laughs> are you so sure about that? You sure about that? Because I can be really legalistic. And when I'm legalistic... Jesus ceases to be, Jesus isn't only a person to be worshipped, Jesus becomes a prop that I want to use in conversations to prove my point. Jesus and the gospel and the Bible, when we fall into legalism, becomes a weapon that we wound one another with rather than seeing us reconciled together. And as we study the Bible, living like Jesus helps us reject the relief that legalism would bring. Because legalism blinds us to where God is present and at work both in us and others, and of course, who God is. And when we're not aligned with Christ, we become increasingly focused on ourselves. Let me read a story in Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 39. And, and don't just exclude yourself from the story. And in the story, you're not Jesus, you're somebody else. 
In fact, I would actually go so far as to say, in this story, you are both the Pharisee and the woman, and so see yourself appropriately. One of the Pharisees asked him, asked to eat with Jesus. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at his table. And behold, everyone say, behold. A woman of the city, that's not an endearing term, by the way. A woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet. If you're uncomfortable with intimacy, this story is going to make you uncomfortable. Okay? She's standing behind him at his feet, and she begins to openly weep. Okay? Now you have the presence of a sinner, you have the person of Jesus, and you're going to begin to have a different fragrance fill the room. But it's not the only fragrance that is present in the room. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. How many of you know that's awkward worship? Like that would, that would make, I think that, that, okay, that would make most of us uncomfortable. Some of you are like, mm-mm, not me. Then you are amazing. <laughs> and I mean that with sincerity. She kissed his feet. Well, first she, she pours out her tears on his feet. And then with the head of her own hair, she's wiping his feet and she's kissing his feet and she's anointing them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, here's what he said. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. But we're actually really clear in the story that Jesus actually knows specifically who she is and who is touching him. He's under no illusions that she is not a sinner. In fact, the Bible already said that she was. He's under no illusions. There's much more we can say there, but time doesn't permit. And so to address this story playing out in front of them, Jesus tells them a parable. And here's the parable that he says. So the story that I just described, we just read, is happening right in front of Jesus, and he tells a story to highlight the real story that's happening. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Of, how, of what? Of how many? Both. both. Ah, how good is God? He cancels the debt of both. Now, he asks a question, Jesus does, to reveal the heart. Which of them will love him more? That's a good question. Because they're both in debt, Jesus is saying. It's actually a really, really direct and offensive story. It really is what Jesus is saying in the moment. Here's what's happening. Both of them are in debt, and Jesus' desire is to forgive both of them. This is the heart. And the story he tells, he does. Now, which of them will love more? And therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. We'll read it again in a minute, verse 47. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves what? Little. He who is forgiven loves little. Now, let me tell you a way you don't want to read this. This is not the proper way to read what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying to Simon, Simon, here's your problem. The problem is, in your life, you haven't sinned enough. That's not what Jesus is saying, is you haven't actually sinned enough. You don't know what it is to be totally broken like this woman. So Simon, what you need to do is you need to go out and you really need to be getting, you need to get a master's degree in sin. This is not what Jesus is saying. But it seems on first glance that he says, hey, man, who is forgiven of little loves little. Who's forgiven of much loves much. So Simon, go out and get a master's degree in sin. Just make a real muck of your life. Get it absolutely destroyed. And when you do, then you will understand what forgiveness is. This is not what Jesus is teaching. 
whatsoever, because here's what's true of all of our lives. Sin never just stays in place. Sin doesn't only affect you, it affects others around us. And so Jesus would never advocate for the one thing that causes death for all of humanity, the very thing, the only thing that he came to actually forgive and reconcile all of us to himself and to deal a death blow to sin, Satan, death, hell, and the grave. So Jesus is not advocating this. This would be an incorrect way in which we can read the Scripture. But Jesus is saying to his Simon something really profound and insightful that all of us can fall into, and it is this. When you and I buy into legalism, it makes us blind to our own need of forgiveness. This is what Jesus is saying to Simon. There is a woman who knows that she is a sinner, who knows that Jesus can do for her what she can't do for herself, and her worship, because of her brokenness and her honesty and her confession and her repentance, because she is willing to admit what she is and equally who Jesus is, then she, from a place of worship, experiences forgiveness. And Simon, who is equally a sinner, but believes he is better than this woman, becomes blind to the fact that he even needs forgiveness at all. <laughs> This isn't a Simon issue. This is a me and you issue. This is a church issue. Which group of people, if they came to faith in Christ, would you struggle that they came to faith in Christ? Which group in our society, when they come into the church, a mess, and they may take years to be sanctified to look more like Jesus, what type of church community are we going to be? Are we going to be a church community that holds the absolutes, that understands the convictions, but is not willing to divide over the questions and the opinions? Or are we going to be biblically astute and emotionally immature with one another? Are we going to grow to be more like Jesus? Legalism seeks to relieve tension by creating boxes of behavior, but, but not transformational change. What was Simon's core issue with this woman? It was what she was doing. What was he blind to see? There is a woman in front of him who is a sinner who is actually getting set free from her sin. The very thing, the very thing that her soul needed most, she is being set free from. And he can't see it because he is offended at what is happening. Oh, Lord, give us all your heart for the lost of which we were and we do become as well. Not like salvation lost, but sanctified along the way a little lost. What's the other side of legalism? The other side of legalism is license. So legalism is pretty clear. License can get a little more fuzzy. But here's the danger of license. Here's how I think that this story could be retold in 2022. How many of you know that what Simon is doing to this woman is unjust? It's unfair. It is. But just because she's experiencing human injustice doesn't mean that she is still, or not yet still, a sinner. So legalism is pretty clear, but license is this. License is you and I 
wanting to make the Bible say what we want it to say to justify how we want to live our lives on our own terms. Depeche Mode was actually prophetic back in the 80s that you and I want to create our own personal Jesus. That's what license does. And here's the danger of license. And here's the truth of it. I don't... My issue in 2022 isn't that we have opinions and beliefs. That's not my issue. My issue, and and particularly if if I could address generationally, I would, but my issue isn't that we have thoughts, feelings, and opinions and beliefs in 2022. That's not the issue. The issue should be in 2022 the value we place on our own thoughts, opinions, and beliefs. It's the misappropriated value that we place them as ultimate. And if you and I put our opinions as ultimate, then here's what happens. Then you're Lord, Jesus is no longer Lord, and now we're into not an opinion and not a question and not a conviction. Now we're into an absolute. This is what we're engaging. Because you can't be Lord and Jesus Lord, only one, and nor can I. And here's the other danger when it comes to license. I can say and I can make the Bible say a lot of things that I want it to say that it doesn't actually say to make my life feel better, to justify my life. I can do these things. Here's the thing, though. The Bible is not my word. It's God's word. And if I make it say what I want it to say, the only one that I'm breaking and harming is me. Because it doesn't matter what I say or call God. God is regardless of what I say. He is not defined or confined by what I say. And so if I, why do I believe that God is provider? Because it's who he declared himself to be. So I can sit in someone's life and they say, I can see no provision and I can empathize from that, but I never devalue the word and say, God is not provider for you. No, he is forever provider. God is healer. Doesn't mean we see healing in every single instance. No, it doesn't. And we have questions, and there are mysteries, and there are things that we wrestle with and we work out. But it doesn't matter if I declare God to be something different. It doesn't change who He is. So license actually doesn't set me free. It looks like freedom. It feels like freedom. But it actually leads me to a different place of brokenness and bondage, where just like in legalism, in legalism I am often blinded to my own sin because I think I'm better than you, but over here I can deceive myself into believing I am okay because of my own delusion and and, and deception. This is what license does. And the heart of the gospel is neither legalism nor license. We said it at the beginning. It's a different way altogether. It's this thing called liberty, freedom. God authored, not me authored. Okay, let's wrap up here. We intentionally skipped a few verses, and we'll read here. Luke seven forty three. Which one will love him more, and how does Simon respond? Again, he answers, the one who, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Now, chapter 7 of Luke, verses 44 to 46. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Simon, Do you see this woman? It's not a rhetorical question, by the way. It's a real honest question. Do you see this woman? A direct translation. Do you see this woman the way I see this woman? Or do you see this woman the way you see this woman? 
Do you have development eyes? Can you see where God is at work or can you just see what you, where you want God to work? How many of you that when people come to Christ, they come to Christ real messy and they don't change on our clock and calendar. They change on their obedience and surrender, just like you and I. Do you see this woman? Do you remember a moment ago I talked to you about different fragrances and I'm not going to be rude here? Remember I did? Because Simon was so passionate about proving his point, he forgets even the basic hospitalities of a Jewish home. Watch. Jesus says it really clearly. He says to Simon, here's his accusation. I'm not here for love. I'm here for something else. And this woman is here from love and nothing else. Watch what he says. I entered your house and you gave no water for my feet. Open-toed sandals on historic roads equals dirt, mess, and other things that need to be cleaned or there's an aroma in the house. And that's not, Jesus says, this didn't even happen. Basic hospitality out the window. How many, anybody here ever been in a fight with someone and you're so at odds that you can't even do the most basic thing? I have both hands, both feet. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Verse 47, here's what he says. Therefore, I tell you, her sins. What does Jesus say? Hey, I'm so sorry that you have been victimized by these terrible Pharisees. He may have said that. I don't know. We can't read that. We can't infer that. But here's the thing. Jesus is less concerned about license or legalism or platitudes. He is deeply concerned, though, about her experiencing liberty and freedom. And if all Jesus does is push Simon back and she walks out a sinner, unforgiven, then she is actually not yet free. And we as a culture need to look at the external things, absolutely. But as followers of Christ, we cannot only look at the external things and then in fear, not call sin, sin. And not just in others, in ourselves. We've got to let God go here. We cannot be so consumed with freedom, looking only from external things, that we excuse the real sickness or disease. It would be no different than going into a doctor who knew your core disease and had the treatment, and yet they treated the symptoms and not the core issue of what was making you sick in the first place. And Jesus, because he is love, doesn't do that. I tell you, her sins, which are many, how many of you want to hear that word from the Lord? Her sins, which are many. What is Jesus answering here to Simon? I know exactly who she is, but I'm not going to define her just by what she's done or what has happened to her. She is going to be defined. Those things are in her life, but she is going to be forever defined by this encounter of my love and her love for me. She is going to receive liberty and freedom in a way that religion and legalism or license could not give her, and I am the only one who can do it. But he was forgiven, then Jesus says, little loves little. Loved ones, the echo in the heart for Jesus here is love what only Jesus can do and not what is false what the world desires to do. 
Some can't see Jesus because of their behavioral boxes of legalism. And others can't see Jesus because of their temporary or fleeting season of sin or license. Yet in Jesus, living in true liberty sees both sin and forgiveness, behavior and what lies beneath, grace and truth, uh, a rescue and repentance, surrender and forgiveness. Paul said it best, for freedom, for liberty, Christ has set us free. Stand firm there and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, of legalism or license or anything else. How does the Bible help us live like Jesus? The Bible leads me and it leads you to see Jesus. And then in see Jesus, we see ourselves, but we also grow to see others more clearly as he heals us and sets us free from our own legalism or our own license and puts our feet on the path of liberty. Heavenly Father, we are all tempted because when we feel tension, we just want it to be over. But Father, grow us to be who you've called us to be. Help us choose the path of liberty, though it is more challenging. Father, help us make, help us become more like you, inch by inch, um, kilometer by kilometer, encounter by encounter, or phrase by phrase as we read your word. Father, whether it's in silence or a supernatural moment, you are the Lord of all of them. And forgive us, Father. Forgive us, Lord, where we have come alongside of others and unwittingly used your name against the work that you were doing in someone's heart and life. Father, give us your eyes to see and your ears to hear. And when we get it wrong, may we be confessional and repentant and surrender so that the church might one day be a place for those who are like this woman who run to you and not run from you. Lord, move in your church, we pray. Amen.